Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Don't Mom Alone podcast. I'm your host, Heather McFadden, and this is the place where I get to walk alongside you and connect you with people and resources so you know that you don't mom alone. And in this episode number 434, I've created something a little special in light of the fact that this November marks 10 years of walking alongside each other every week, putting out podcast episodes. So I've gone into the archives. I found five episodes that you may have missed, but I feel like are must. So in this episode, there are clips from each of those shows and we've linked to them in the show notes if you want to listen to the whole episode, which I think you should if you have time. The first episode I am sharing with you is episode 290. It was with Dr. Kara Powell. She's a mom and a professor and a researcher at Fuller Youth Institute. And I'm starting with this episode because it kind of coincides with the series we've been doing, my conversation with Vila and Jane Winship about faith in our kids and our role. And what I loved about this episode is Kara has done research on what makes faith sticky. And so she's going to share a few of those results in this clip. Let's get right to it. Here we go. If I had to pick just one thing, it would probably be the power of warmth in a family. Um, mm. You know, it's so easy in the midst of the busyness of family life to get focused on carpools and chemistry homework and all it takes to keep a family functioning. And, you know, we as parents, we can get focused on simply getting kids to obey our rules. Or even if we're trying to, you know, be the parents that we want to be, we're looking for the tip or the trick that will you know, yield some kind of result in our kids. And, and certainly in this conversation, we'll talk about some helpful phrases to say and, and things to do and all that. But multiple studies have shown how important it is that kids are connected to their parents, heart to heart connection. Um, and what's a little daunting, Heather, is that it's not how I feel connected to my kids that counts. It's how connected my kids feel to me. And our kids are often harsher graders on that. <laughs> so we might feel pretty connected with our kids, but our kids might not feel, be feeling the same in return. And that's what really matters. And so, you know, slowing down, putting my laptop away, looking my kids in the eye, carving out the time one-on-one -on -one or all five of us together and building that warm relationship. I think more than anything else, that's been the implication of our research. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Trying not to feel the guilt, but yeah. <laughs> so how can we have better conversations with our kids? What advice do you have? Yeah, well, and uh, these would be some of the other things I've said where my, our research just very much changed my parenting. I'll, I'll focus on two aspects of parent-child faith conversations. Okay. The, the first has to do with what we share about our own faith as parents. So before our research, and again, our youngest was six when we really started uncovering this research. So our kids would have been six, nine, 11. We're in the minivan coming home from church or, you know, we're, we're having a toast at 11 o'clock after church in our family room. And Dave and I would say, well, you know, what did you guys learn in church today? Or what did you study in church today? And they would give us an answer and we would kind of nod along. What we weren't doing as parents is we weren't sharing what we learned in church that day. Huh. Um, you know, we were interviewing our kids, super well-intentioned interviewing our kids, but not sharing about our own growth. 
And this, we had a whole PhD student who in our sticky faith research focused on parent-child faith conversations. And what she found was, it was good. It's good, Heather, for you to ask questions of your four sons. Keep doing that. But what is as important on that drive home from church or as you're processing, you know, something together that you're seeing in the news, whatever it might be, what's as important is that the parents share about their own faith journey also. And so, you know, instead of just interviewing our kids on the way home from church, um, Dave and I started sharing, well, here's what we learned in the worship service or, or I, you know, when I volunteer in student ministries, here's what we talked about in youth group so that it became much more of a conversation. So that's, that's the first thing I would say to parents and step parents, grandparents, guardians is, you know, look for ways to share organically and naturally about your own faith. And I love that so many of your listeners are parents of preschoolers and elementary age because it's far easier to start that pattern when they're that age than when they're 17. So, you know, better to start this at seven than 17. And then the other thing that I would say that's very much changed our faith conversations with our kids is the importance of doubt and talking about doubt. Yeah. Um, in our research, uh, about 80% of youth group graduates had pretty significant doubts about God when they graduated from high school. At some point during high school, they had, they had doubts. And while that might be alarming, it actually wasn't. The difference in how they navigated those doubts is whether or not they had an opportunity to talk about it. And what we found is that when high school students had an opportunity to express and explore those doubts, that was actually correlated with greater faith maturity. So put more simply, it's not doubt that is toxic to faith, it's silence. Hmm. Um, And so, you know, we have tried to create an environment in our house where we can talk about our tough questions about God, about when we disagree. Sometimes I'll ask my kids, if you could ask God any question, what would it be? As my kids are now teenagers, you know, I'll ask them, you know, how, how has your faith grown in such a way that you think maybe you and I believe something different? And let's talk about that. Just yesterday, because it's the pandemic, we're doing kind of family church on Sunday mornings. I usually watch much of our church's online service and then talk about it. And yesterday, our, our 17-year-old, she really pushed in on something. And she said, Mom, I, I, don't, I don't really like how you phrase that question. I don't think that's the right way to think about it. And so we unpacked that. And, and Heather, that was actually the best part of our conversation yesterday morning. Yeah. And so I said at the end, I said, you know, Krista, thank you so much for pushing in on that question. That was my favorite part of, our, of the discussion we just had. So creating an environment where we can talk about the tough things we see in the news, Um, the questions we have about God, God can handle those questions. He's big enough to handle them. And so we want our homes to be a place where we can talk about them. My three takeaways from that conversation, one is the temperature of our home and doing my part to help foster the warmth. Two is talking about my own faith and what God is teaching me. And three is allowing space for doubt and questions and recognizing that God can handle it. The next episode I want to share with you is called The Six Needs of Every Child. It was episode 322 with Amy and Jeffrey Ulrich. They are actually living on the other side of the globe at the time of our interview. This book, Six Needs of Every Child, was based on attachment theory. And to me, it was such a way to simplify our interactions with our kids and the interactions, how they differ from kid to kid, season to season, but how these six basic needs remain the same no matter 
what age you are. So let's get right to it. Here we go. We just realized that there's such a better message that not only resonates with the science that's being uncovered, neuroscience, attachment science, what we call the science of connection, but also with scripture, which is very exciting to us. But this question that almost feels like uh, this reactive question, the question that we all have within ourselves is what do I do, right? What do I do? And I remember standing in the kitchen with my little kiddos, what do I do? (laughs) And The problem with that question is that you think, or I'll just speak for myself, I think there's a right or wrong answer to that question. And if I somehow get it wrong, then I have made a mistake and I have failed them. Or if I'm talking with one of my friends and I say, look, you know, my son is struggling with this. And she says, you know what? My daughter was struggling with the same thing. And this is how we solved that problem. This will work for you too. And I go home and I try it. And let's say it doesn't work. Well, then all of a sudden I think, I go back to that. I've done something wrong. I start to feel like a failure. I start to wonder if maybe my kid's a failure and that those feelings of failure reflect on our faces. They reflect in our relationships we have with our kids. So we want to take this question. What should I do with my child and transform it into a different question that we believe resonates with both science and scripture, which is how shall I be with this person? You know, I was telling you, I've been reading through the book and I happened to be in the dentist's office while reading it with my kids and I'm consuming this information that you're giving. And then moms and kids would come into the waiting room (laughs) and I couldn't help, but assess the attachment and the needs and all of that, that you have written about with each of these relational interactions Like it was super interesting and it really is. It's a before and after moment, isn't it? So what we, what we do in the book is we present these, these instincts that every single one of us human beings is born with their instincts that prompt us to develop and grow. It's an instinct, but they're, they complement each other, but they look different, which can be so confusing for us parents. So Children are born with the instinct to go out and explore and master their world, to go out. It's why, you know, we humans develop and grow and, you know, want to find new places in the world and make new discoveries. That's because we have an instinct to go out. And then we have this other instinct that when things are hard or we have questions or we need protection, other things, we want to come back to a trusted caregiver and we want to recover and regroup. And it is this circle of movement forward. There's the going out and there's the coming back, the going out and coming back. You, we, I saw it most clearly in my little guys when we go to the park when they were little, because again, we go back to the different temperaments. One of them was very timid. So he would kind of toddle a couple steps away from us and then he would start to feel unsure. And then he would come right back and run to us. We had another kiddo who was just, you know, so curious and it's such a little explorer and he could run. Sometimes I'd worry he'd just run, (laughs) keep going, but he'd get about maybe a block away and then you'd see his little head turn. Where's mom and dad. Okay. And there, so there is this push and pull, this can, this almost magnetic connection that we have with our kids and they use us to grow and they use us as they go out and as they come back and balancing of both things. Well, you know, it's, it's getting to see our kids and, Oh, they need to know how to go out. Well, Oh, they need to be able to come back and recover. Well, introduce everyone listening to this needs compass, because a part of that exploring and coming back and reconnecting in that attachment process is at different points for each of our children they're going in and out of a need and how we respond to that 
influences whether they seek us out again. Is that right? To fill that need or whether we have disconnect or connection? Yeah, there are a couple of things going on there. And the first thing I just want to reflect back on is this idea, I think as in general and parenting, like there are secrets for little kids. There are secrets to know about the middle childhood. There are secrets in what's going on now, what's going on. And, and those things are all valid. There are developmental stages. There are important things going on that are sort of rise to the surface at different stages. But what we tried to help do for parents is ground them. So the six needs, which are delight, support, boundaries, protection, comfort, and equipping, and those six needs align with what Amy was talking about earlier, about the two general movements of life, which is to go out and to come back. But those six needs uh, ground all of those developmental stages. So, you know, the two-year-old, the 10-year-old, the 18-year-old, me as an adult, I still am guided, directed within myself by those needs. They look very different at different stages, but we wanted to give parents something where they could go, okay, whatever age my kid, whatever his personality, I know these needs are in there within them. My job is to, is to know my child and begin to discern what that need looks like at different moments uh, and at different stages and recognize what my role is to help them with that need. And the bit of the tricky business is here is like we're carrying those needs too. And we have biases, like there are needs that we pay closer attention to that we instinctually or intuitively or by our own attachment histories growing up. Like we, you know, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail, that sort of business. So <laughs> most people will read this book and they'll go, oh yeah, that need, that need, that need, I'm all over it. And then those other needs you are like, oh yeah, maybe I kind of, you know, there's some part of me that recognizes that that's a need, but I don't like going there. Yeah. So the book is helping parents to just one ground them that six is a manageable number. We're not talking about 12 or something, you know, and they're not changing they're constant. There's a through line throughout, even if what it looks like changes. So it would be less overwhelming for parents. They could just say, at this moment with this child, of those six options, what makes the most sense? And let's work in that direction. Yeah. And I think you're touching on your interaction with your son there. I want to make sure listeners understand about these needs. One is that they're very fluid. And two is they're not mutually exclusive. So as our children are moving through life, it's not that they have only one need at a time. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and, and often what's the case is we see one of the needs that's on the table, you know, what's relevant for that situation. They perceive uh, a need, they're prioritizing a need. And I'm going off in my direction, they're going off in their direction. And we're we're stuck. We keep pushing harder in the directions that seem most relevant to each of us. And fracture occurs. It's that feeling of disconnection. I think all of us is, well, in, in most of our relationships, but especially our relationship with children, we feel that within ourselves. And that, and we say to people, just listen, pay attention to that. That's usually a sign. There, there are probably multiple needs and you're, you're, you're driving in one direction. Your child is driving in another. It is your job. Like it's that author, authoritative, not authoritarian, but taking charge is what we mean by authoritative, like you, you have an authority to take charge of this moment 
and give context and understanding. Your child, child's not gonna come to you and say, excuse me, dad, <laughs> can you not see that what I really need here right now is, no, they can't do that. It's our job to go, oh, wait a second, big picture. There are a couple of things going on. Let me help my child and me together get there. So I want you to know that if you go to the show notes for that episode, episode 322 that's linked in the show notes for this episode, you'll see a graphic that is their compass and it has the draw near side and the explore. And the draw near is protection need, then comfort need, equipping, which then leads into the explore needs, which are delight, support, and boundaries. And I think it's really helpful whatever challenge you're walking through right now with your kids or maybe a disconnect to use this as a neutral vocabulary to kind of talk through what you think they need and maybe ask them what they think they need and reconnect there. Um, to me, it's just been a really helpful framework and I hope it is helpful to you as well. With all of the needs of my children and my husband and my home and my friends, I often get put to the bottom of the care list and so I was thrilled when one of our sponsors reached out and offered to send me one of their bras. Okay, I know it's a more personal conversation we're having here, but moms, this is real, real. We don't often take care of these parts of ourselves, and I have been loving the crossover bra that Honey Love sent me. It is my new go-to because one, I hate underwire and this bra provides the amount of support I need. It also has this really cool mesh detailing at the top. So if I have a shirt that's maybe lower cut and I don't want to have to wear a cami underneath, I don't have to with this bra, I can wear it all day without discomfort. It doesn't have the back bulging situation because it has this smooth fabric. The way they've designed their products, it just everything fits, holds, and is comfortable. I don't know how to describe it, but they even have a more relaxed option, a lounge bra called their V-bra. <laughs> and it doesn't create that uni-boob effect. Anyway, Honey Love has more than even just bras. They have shapewear, tanks, leggings. Everything's breathable, comfortable, and supportive. They have you covered. So moms, please treat yourself to the best bras on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com forward slash DMA. You can use our exclusive link to get 20% off. Go to honeylove.com forward slash DMA. After you purchase, they ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show. Tell them that we sent you. It is time to ditch the underwire for good. Thanks to Honey Love. Speaking of getting real, I loved this real conversation with Joe Saxton. It was episode 283. It was called Embracing the Mom You're Meant to Be. And it was Joe just sharing her story of motherhood and coming to terms with where God was assigning her and how to work with her community instead of feeling like an outsider because of how she was wired as a mom. So I think it's super encouraging. I loved it so much that honestly – picking clips. I wanted to put the whole episode in here. So you definitely should go back and listen to the whole thing. All right, here we go. And it was in the church community more than it was in our local community, but the sense of you have this wonderful opportunity to stay home with your child and make as many things as organic as possible, which I'm, I'm down for. It was just like, 
am I picking the corn by hand? What are we doing here? And there was, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? And also there was a clash of cultures because there is a British expectation and an American expectation. Right. And I didn't, fit, I, I didn't feel I fully fit into either. And there was, how do you feel about sleep training? How do you feel about the food you can, and watching people have very strong emotions about things I wasn't sure I was supposed to care about. And then think, the painful thing was, is there something wrong with me? That was the hardest message because I didn't feel I needed to have a debate with somebody about which diaper I was going to use. I didn't feel that was debate worthy. Right. You know, I remember there was some friends who, you know, like, like if you're struggling with your baby, bring all your kids come over and all come into my house. And I thought, please don't do that. I'm not the friend who has all the kids over. I'm the friend who pays for the babysitter and buys you a bottle of red wine. That is the friend I am. <laughs> I, I, I don't know whether I'm supposed to be that friend. I don't know if you want me to be that friend, but I promise that's all I've got, sis. That's all I've yeah. got. And so I felt, I felt like in this neighborhood where people love their mum's groups, and I did, but I was always looking for the woman in that group who didn't like being there and who wanted to subvert it by all means necessary. You know what I mean? I was, it was terrible. I was, and I, and I, I didn't see myself. And I'm like, what does, what does my motherhood look like? And I didn't feel confident enough at that time to embrace it. Yeah. Embrace how I was. And alongside that, there was, I, I expected, and I don't know why, Heather, I, I, I think it was, I don't know actually why this was, but I, part of my job involves a lot of public speaking. And I expected all the invitations to dry up once I was pregnant. I thought, you are pregnant. People will see the rounding belly and leave you alone. And, um, and some did. Some, some left me well alone. And, but there were two things that happened. I became a volunteer at my church and worked harder than when I was paid. And that began to make me ask some questions. Mm. <laughs> and um, I just thought, hold on a second. What's just happened here? And also, I would get invites to places and, and me have to ask myself, do I still want to do this? Do I not want to do this? Is this still part, you know, I'm still me. And what does this mean for our lives if this continues? And I think that no, at no other time was confusion so painful. Hmm. Confusion was painful in that chapter of my life. Was it that this should be enough? That this should be enough and that was a lie? Yeah, that this should be enough. And because I didn't see anybody else doing it, I heard these other women who were like, oh, you know, I'm just so glad I got to leave that rat race behind and all that kind of stuff. And I, they couldn't imagine wanting to do that. So that was one part of it. There weren't many friends I knew at that time who were working mothers too. And then there was a personal story as well. My childhood was quite turbulent. And I spent my first six years in foster care, wonderful foster mother, amazing woman, and then returned to live with my, my mum. Hmm. And um, so I've always grown up with lots of mothers and it's just kind of our weird, wacky family should be on lifetime, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, it's your normal. So you're like, what do you mean this is strange? And everybody's like, oh honey, it's strange. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I think alongside that was this sense of, I have been given this child. I have been given this little life. And although my mothers didn't have much choice in, in what happened in, in our story, I have a choice. Surely all I should want to do is be here. Surely all I should want is to be in this room and have this choice that others were denied. So, and I think it does take a while, doesn't it? For you to, well, at least it took me a while to get comfortable in my own skin. I met, I got to know a couple of other working mothers and I just felt, I thought, okay. And, and you know, real talk, my stay at home friends weren't judging me. The ones who judged me, I didn't become friends with. Do you know what I mean? My, <laughs> I just didn't because right. life is short. But the right. ones who were my friends weren't judging me anyway. They saw themselves as part of my support network. Exactly. 
yeah. How did they, because that's probably a piece of what helped you do what you're doing is, is really connecting with true friends who, who believed more in you than their formula. Exactly. And who everybody's lives was enriched by the differences and the different stages of life. We didn't have to be a monolith to be friends. We didn't have to all do, because a lot of that doing the same thing, everybody acknowledged was built out of their own insecurity of, am I doing this right? Wow, Joe, that, let's say it again for the ones in the back. <laughs> <laughs> and, what, and by this point, my, my oldest was in kindergarten. So we, we got to know each other at the school gates. And there was a woman there who we, we would chat and everything. And she said, oh, I know you're traveling. She goes, I just want you to know that if your husband needs anything or if the kids just need to come and play, I've got you kind of thing. And I, I felt really bad. I, and, I, and I was one of these particularly guilty feeling frustrated with my job days. And I was doing it and I knew it was, it was earning money. It was helping our family, but I still wasn't a hundred percent resolved on it all. And, and I said to her, I goes, I'm so grateful. And she grabbed my hand and she said, she said, hold on a second. She goes, you need to understand. If, <laughs> she goes, let me just help you understand a few things. She said, I'm not called to do what you do. I'm not, that's not my wiring. That's not my gift thing. You're called to do what you do. She goes, this is what I'm called to do. She said, this is me living my mission. This is my part of the mission. You're doing your part of the mission. This is my part of the mission. Let me do my part of the mission. She goes, that's all this is. And, and she said, this isn't you being a guilty mother and feeling bad and me stooping down to help you. She goes, and, and it was wonderful because she was just very realistic about it. She's like, look, we're all living these lives. And um, she goes, this is my gift. This is what I love to do. Just let me, would you just step out of the way and let me use my gift? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? The, I, you can cry some other time, but this isn't the stay at home mom standing over you saying you poor inadequate working mother. This is us all on mission together, mm. playing our different parts. And when I'd come back from this, she'd be like, okay, how do we do? How's it all going out there? Because she knew she had a part in the mission. When I said, Joe, say it again for the people in the back, what she said was, they're all doing the same thing, was built from their insecurity of, am I doing this right? And I, you know, in my latest book, Right Where You Belong, I'm such a big fan of you knowing how God made you and where he's placed you. And some of that we have choice and we have agency and sometimes we don't. But to look around and say, wow, my path looks different than others, so I must be doing it wrong is a lie of the enemy. And to think, oh, my kids have to look like everybody else because then I'm doing it right is also a lie of the enemy. So y'all, go listen to Joe. Her accent alone is worth the <laughs> listen. Okay, next up is an episode I just, it was a transformational episode for me. And if you missed it, then this is why I'm putting a clip in here. Uh, Dr. Kurt Thompson, Redeeming Shame Through Community is the name of the episode. It's episode 308. And he's written a couple books, Soul of Shame. He's written even more books recently on grief. But this first clip is just a portion of a longer teaching he did at the beginning of the episode. So definitely one you need to go back and listen to. I know I keep saying that. All right, let's get right to it. Here we go. When we experience shame from a neurobiological standpoint, from a brain standpoint and a body standpoint, there are two or three things that stand out about it. One and this is really important to know, is that shame begins, we can begin to sense it and feel it and respond to it as early as 15 to 18 months of age. Yeah. When I heard that, I was like, oh, shoot. Yeah. I mean, that feels like a lot of pressure for a mom. Yeah. And here's one thing I tell parents. Look, the only way you're not going to screw up your kids <laughs> is if you don't have them. 
<laughs> it's the only way you don't screw up your kids. Yeah. I have I have a daughter who's 30 and a son who's 27. And, you know, they're they're wonderful people. And they are living, breathing proof that, like, if we're going to have our kids, they are going to have their own experiences of brokenness. They're just going to have them. And we are going to be part of that. And and here's the, the beautiful thing is, Heather, Jesus isn't worried about that. Hmm. He's not worried about our kids. Yeah. He's not worried about your mothering. He's not worried. He's delighted. He knows how hard this work is. And he knows that we will do it imperfectly. And Good Friday, seen through the lens of Easter, is God's message to say, I'm not worried about evil because it can't control me. Even when we have our worst moments in which we foist shame upon our kids, in which our kids experience shame against everything that we're doing to try to combat it, God is saying, I'm not worried. I never run out of options. And so even though it begins early in our kids' history, it also is a message to us that God is always present in the middle of that. One of the other things that shame will tend to do then it neurobiologically, we say that it disintegrates us. It cuts off my thinking brain from my feeling brain from my body. I don't function well or clearly. Imagine what it's been like for you to try to think clearly or to create or to cooperate or to um, enjoy anything when you're in the middle of an experience of shame. It's very difficult. Yeah. Another feature is that we tend to automatically, and we don't even need to think about doing this, we tend to isolate. Now, we don't just isolate parts of my brain's activity from other parts. My thinking brain gets cut off and isolated from my feeling brain. But I, as an individual, also will turn and isolate myself from you, from others. Shame has me not wanting you to see it. And as such, I will turn away from you. Many of us have seen a dog experience shame. A dog will put its head down, put its tail between its legs. It lowers its eyes. It turn, it, it's basically neurophysiologically turning away from us. Another feature is that the cognitive element, so I'm hiding from you, and the cognitive element of shame, my thinking brain, the part of it that thinks about what I'm feeling, is one of condemnation. There's something wrong with me. I'm bad. I am worthless. I am insignificant. I am, and then just fill in the blank. All these, I'm not enough. All of these are words that we use to help us explain and make sense of what this thing is that we are sensing. It also tends to move us toward what I would call stasis. And by stasis, I mean we don't move. And without movement, right, like shame literally tends to move the body into a place of immobility. First, it is my mind that is immobilized, and then my body is immobilized. And I do not move toward the other. I don't move toward you. When I, as a parent, am ashamed about something that I've done toward my child, I just want to run away. Yeah. I just want to leave. And I want to like go hide and crawl up into a ball because I feel so bad. The whole notion of moving toward my child or the whole notion of when my child feels shame, the whole notion that they might want to move toward me is not something they're going to want to do. One of the things that we realize in the scriptures is that 
as the scriptures unfold the story of human beings, anytime it mentions sin, frequently shame is attached in the Hebrew language. Shame is part of that. Hmm. And one of the things that we notice about shame is that because we are immobilized and we are hiding, shame does not actually ever allow us to move toward God. This is why we have to have someone come and find us. This is why that when our children are experiencing shame, we have to go and find them. This is why it's important for us as parents, if we're going to go and find our children, we as parents also must have others who are coming to find us. We cannot give what we do not have. And God does not expect us to give to our children out of our own personal reserves. We give to our children out of the reserves that we are receiving from others who are coming to find us. We do not, on our own, heal ourselves of this problem. We actually have to borrow from other people's minds. I have to borrow the facial expression, the tone of voice of you, Heather, saying to me, Kurt, I'm with you. This is really hard. I really hear how badly you feel about this. And I just want you to know that I'm with you. And so I can't just take in your words. I can't just say, I can't just, you know, take in and hear like the facts. Like, Kurt, you don't need to be ashamed of that. That's talking to a part of my brain where my shame doesn't really dwell. The part of my brain where shame dwells is the part where I have to remember sensing the tone of your voice, sensing what your eyesight looks like, other moms, like hearing. So who are going to be the two or three other moms who are going to be in my cohort of people who are going to help me tell my story more truly? And by telling me my story, I don't just mean telling me the facts, saying to me that God loves me, saying to me that there is no shame, reminding me that Jesus isn't worried about this. All those are important, but what's most important is that as you tell me that you are with me in my shame and that my shame is hard to work out of, I'm going to pay more attention to my memory of what you just said to me. And by what, I don't just mean the words. I mean, I'm going to remember where we were sitting in the room or where we were standing as we went for a walk now that we're in COVID. I'm going to remember the sound of your voice. I'm going to remember the feeling that I felt in my chest as it lightened, as I saw the tears in your eyes, as you held my story, as I told you my story. He transformed my understanding of bringing shame to a community and feeling loved and accepted and worthy when everything in our heart and mind wants to tell us that what we've said done makes us unworthy. Go check out his work. If you've never heard of Dr. Kurt Thompson, I'm so thrilled to get to connect you with him. I'm so thankful that this podcast was sponsored by Relief Band because y'all, I love connecting you with products. And if you have kids that get nauseous in the car, we've got holidays coming up, y'all. You may need this or boats or you are that mom who is recently pregnant and you're experiencing nausea. I want to help you out. Relief Band is the number one anti-nausea wristband that quickly relieves and effectively prevents nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, even anxiety, y'all. My boys get migraines and then are nauseous, hangovers, morning sickness, even chemotherapy. So Relief Band sent me 
a sample and I actually gifted it to our friends whose son is currently going through chemotherapy because he's taking so many other medications and because Relief Band is natural and fast acting and it's 100% drug free with it's non-drowsy, it doesn't have any side effects, I thought it would be a great option for him since he doesn't like that feeling of feeling out of it that a lot of nausea relief pills give you. So other great things. Relief Band has an A-plus Better Business Bureau rating and over 100,000 satisfied customers. So they are a brand you can trust. And this would be a great gift if you have a nausea sufferer in your life. Think about getting them a Relief Band. If you always have a flashlight on hand for a blackout or a first aid kit on hand for emergencies, then you need a relief band for those unexpected nausea moments. Right now, we've got an exclusive offer just for Don't Mom Alone listeners. If you go to reliefband.com, use the promo code DMA, you will receive 20% off plus free shipping. So head to R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com, use our promo code DMA for 20% off plus free shipping. Another episode that I feel like you may have missed because on the feed, it didn't even have her name. Oh my goodness. When I saw the title, I was like, oh, who was that interview with? And I clicked on it and it is such a great conversation. It was with Lisa Harper. It's episode 174 and it's called When Your Wounded Soul Needs a Smiling God. And I will give you a trigger warning that part of Lisa's story does include abuse. So if you might need your earbuds at this time or if that's part of your story, I just wanted to give you that heads up. It, she is such a fantastic teacher, speaker, and encourager. Let's get to it. Here we go. And I walked the aisle that day in a Baptist church and said, I want to give my heart to Jesus because I, of course, didn't understand much. I just thought, I want a daddy who won't leave me. Mm-hmm. And so that began my walk of faith, but I didn't dream that God would delight in me. You know, I thought really kind of the best you get is he tolerates you and then you do everything you can to be as good as you can. So he won't regret his decision of kind of almost like, okay, let her in. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in my early twenties, after I'd already messed up pretty wildly, I'd, you know, had some seasons in college where I was anything but godly in my behavior. And so the concept of a God who grins when he sees us coming, the, the whole idea of Song of Solomon 4, 9, that with one glance of our eyes, we captured his heart, that we had God at hello, that he sings songs of delight over us, that he's not some unibrow librarian. That was all, <laughs> you know, I mean, it just slayed me. It just yeah. slayed me. When you begin reading about the mercy mm-hmm. of God in some of these people's stories, um, and then I, I started doing some really practical things. And the girls listening to this podcast who probably did this when they were little. But I went through Psalm 139, which, you know, all of the Psalms, P-S-A-L-M-S, that section in the middle of the Bible that we usually think of as warm fuzzy, um, were originally written as songs, S-O-N-G-S. So I always say that's God's iPod. And and the song <laughs> on his iPod that would be his, I mean, it would be his Bono Beautiful Day. You know, it would be just this this song you should have memorized is Psalm 139 mm-hmm. because it's our identity. It's who we are. Once you've said, Jesus, I can't make it by myself. You know, I need you. I need your unconditional love and your forgiveness. 
Psalm 139 is our identity. And so I go to Psalm 139 and everywhere there's a personal pronoun, I write my name. And that's God saying to me, you were wonderful and beautifully made because it's real easy for me to listen even still, Heather, to the lies of the enemy. I'm 53 years old. You know, I haven't been abused for 40 years much. I mean, I I guess I've had some abuse in my twenties, but let's just say I haven't been abused for 30 years. So I haven't been abused for longer than I was abused. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yet when you've got sexual abuse, you've got emotional abuse, you've got things have been done or said to you that made you feel less than Mm -hmm. it's, I feel like when you're younger, it's like you get this handprint made in the cement of your heart while it's still drying. Well then yes, God heals that. Yes. God redeems that. Yes. God's whispers a million different ways through good friends and husbands and pastors and his word and his spirit that here's the truth. That's not who you are. That's not who you are. But what I told somebody recently was those handprints in my heart, because they were set when I was a little girl, when it rains in my life. So when I go through a storm, when I go through a difficult season, those handprints still collect water. Mm-hmm. So I have to be very intentional about going, no, that is not who I am anymore. I have to be really intentional about going, okay, that is a lie from the enemy. Here's who I am in Christ. And then I do as crazy as it sounds, but I, I started doing this with girls I work with who are recovering from addictions. I volunteer with a ministry here in Nashville with just these amazing women, most of whom have uh, incarceration in their background. Well, anyway, I told my girls, because they're like, Lisa, we don't get some of the heady theological stuff you're talking about. Give us something practical to really stay in that place of believing that he loves me, even believing that I'm lovable when it comes to a holy God. And I started getting them to take their laundry. They all share this like little laundromat in the residential treatment center they live in. And I said, you get your laundry out of the dryer and you put it on your little twin bed in the dorm and you lean back into that warm laundry. Cause of course they don't have men in this residential treatment center, just like me. My husband's lost, won't stop to ask for directions. Um, <laughs> He's lost. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm, and my, I got you. Yep. Yep. No, no man in my life either. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, you lean back in that warm laundry and you say, Jesus, give me the grace to lean in, to stay present in your embrace. With this warmth around me, you give me the grace. You teach me the really the the sacrament of staying in your embrace, in your affection, because he loves us with an everlasting love. It's just most of us wriggle out of his embrace as fast as we can, and then we try to do a dance to prove to him, see, see, I'm a good kid, see, see, I'm a good kid. Right. If we would learn to linger longer in the affection of God, I'm telling you, we'd recognize the, the lies of the enemy much faster. Yeah. Mm. Okay, y'all, I hope you enjoyed these little clips and I hope that you do linger. Maybe you take some of Lisa's advice and you go into Psalm 139 and you personalize it or you get that warm laundry and you put it on the bed and you lay into it. Whatever it is, whatever spoke to you today, I just pray and it was an encouragement to you. I'm telling you, it was hard to pick five episodes. I mean, we're almost to 500 episodes. So we're going to create a couple more of these compilation episodes to put them out in the next couple weeks because we're just really in awe of the faithfulness of God for the show over the last 10 years. I mean, a decade feels like a monumental event. So I'm going to pray over us. Lord, 
I thank you that you are a God who delights in us. And as we learned from the Ulrichs, that is one of our core needs is delight. And you are so kind to give us the boundaries you do. I thank you that the boundaries of who, how you made us are only there to encourage us so we can go out and do the things that you've given us to do. I thank you that you've created community, not as a competition, but as a soft place to land, as a reminder of how you see us, that how we feel when we're around others who love us deeply is is a reflection of, of your love for us, Lord. And I pray whoever is listening, who is struggling to have the kind of people in their lives that can be that that soft place to land. I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes to see who is around them. I pray that you would foster a new relationship this week. I pray, Lord, if there is healing to be done, if there is uh, shame hanging around and holding a mom back, that she could bring that to you and that she could remember that you are always coming after her, that you, God, are in love with her even if she is doing nothing and even if she has done things that she feels like are the wrong parenting approach, Lord, that you would encourage her heart today to move forward, confident in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, y'all, thanks again for listening. I will meet you back here next week. Adios. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Don't Mom Alone podcast. If you're wanting to connect with more people and more resources to help remind you that you're not alone, head over to don'tmomalone.com. That's where you'll also find show notes with any links mentioned by our guests. Most importantly, I want you to know the good news, the great news that you're not alone because God has promised to always be with you. With faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for you and rose again, Jesus said when he left, he was going to leave a helper, a comforter to be with us. God in us. Moms, that's superpower. So while you're washing dishes at your kitchen sink, while you're driving to and from work, while you're feeding that baby late into the night, while you're cleaning sticky floors, God promises to be just as present with you as when you're worshiping in a church pew. As it says in Zephaniah 3:17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Now that's good news. Have a great day.